I'm Joshua Kage from The Christian Citizen, and this is episode 22 of Justice, Mercy, Faith. In this episode, Mindy Welton Mitchell, a Seattle pastor, joins Christian Citizen editor Curtis Ramsey Lucas for a conversation on doing ministry in the midst of the COVID-19 outbreak. Then, Brian Jackson, who wrote about the first fatality from COVID-19 in the United States occurring in his neighborhood of Kirkland, Washington for the Christian Citizen, updates us on ministry in his context during this pandemic. Both interviews took place on Friday, March 13th. As we're all now aware, news around the coronavirus changes fast. These interviews, while still very recent, already have some dated pieces of information, and we encourage you to continue following the advice of your local leaders, healthcare professionals, and the CDC. On our website, The Christian Citizen has put together a list of resources from the CDC, the American Baptist Home Mission Societies, and a link to a ministry group on the Ministry Life platform as a way to keep informed and engaged. Those resources can be found at christiancitizen.us. Here now is Curtis Ramsey Lucas with Mindy Welton Mitchell. I'm happy to welcome to the podcast Reverend Mindy Welton Mitchell. Mindy is the pastor of Queen Anne Baptist Church in Seattle, Washington, and a ministry associate of social media for the Evergreen Association of American Baptist Churches USA. She is also a contributing writer with The Christian Citizen. Welcome to the podcast, Mindy. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So your church is located in Seattle, near the epicenter of the COVID-19 outbreak, just a few miles away in Kirkland, Washington. What was that uh, first week like when you went from just a few people sick in the state of Washington to uh, 10 dead? So um, if you back up to a week ago Monday, March 3rd, was that or March 2nd, whatever day that was, March 2nd. You know, that day we were kind of like, oh, you know, there's a few people sick. Now there's there'd been a couple people who had, who had passed away, but they were all contained in life care center as far as we knew. Um, so we were aware of it. Um, but even at that point, we were just starting to say, okay, maybe we shouldn't shake hands or, or hug. We'll, we'll reserve our greeting time. And we've had to do that in the past for cold season and flu season. That's nothing new. We put hand sanitizer out every year when we go through this. Um, so it didn't seem like it was anything different than what we've been through before. The next day, we had a forum with the King County Health Department. It had been rain- arranged within about 24 hours for religious leaders. And the mood was definitely more serious because we'd gone up to eight deaths. So that was within just a few days. We'd gone from a few people sick to they were announcing in that forum the eighth death. So at that point, we started talking about practices in the church, like not passing the offering plate. Um, you know, for uh, because it was an ecumenical group, all of my friends who use common cup, there was some, and communion practices and weekly communion, there were concerns there. So those were the things we were talking about and maybe encouraging folks who were at risk to stay home. That was a Tuesday. By Wednesday, all the information they had given us was on a video and they took the video down and said it was out of date. Um, By Thursday, they were talking about canceling Comic-Con in in Seattle, which was supposed to be this weekend. Um, And by Friday, we were talking about canceling worship. It happened that quickly because we went from a few people sick to to a couple hundred who tested positive. And that was when it was starting to come out that 
this had probably been in the Seattle area for weeks and um, the life care center hadn't been quarantined. The fire department knew before the staff did that there was an outbreak. Um, so it became very serious. And there was a lot that went through our minds. Like, you know, it, for a lot of pastors who live in areas where there's snow, you go through this. Like, do you cancel? Do you not? You know, you can get there. Nobody wants to cancel worship. But if you have worship, what does that message say to those who maybe would risk who shouldn't? So those are the kind of questions that we were having a week ago um, today. So we made the decision, okay, we will go ahead, but we're going to urge people who shouldn't come to stay home. I called all of our seniors, checked in with them. They all had planned to stay home. And we had worship. We spread out in our sanctuary. But quite a few churches had canceled at that point. Um, even up through Tuesday when I wrote my article for the Christian Citizen, I was still planning to have worship this Sunday. And then Wednesday when they announced schools were closing, I started to really think about this idea of what they call, you know, um, stopping the curve or flattening the curve that you hear um, and just how risky this is. And there was also the news was coming out of Italy, um, the reports of just massive numbers of people in the hospital. I mean, I think they're talking over 10,000 people at this point and how it was overflowing, um, overworking the healthcare system. And, you know, reading those reports and seeing that we were not far behind where they were two weeks ago, that's when it hit me that one person who comes who may be asymptomatic could be a risk. I mean, it's just that clear that it could be. And even if we may say it's a small risk, all the people who come are young and healthy. We don't know who we're going to be interacting with. We don't know who we could pass this on. And so yesterday we made the decision to not have in-person worship for the rest of March, and it may continue on as long as this um, does. So, yeah, that's it's literally been 10 days, wow. 10 days of going, well, we're just going to practice not shaking hands and use hand sanitizer to this. Right. So things have changed quite a bit in a relatively short time for you. Um, and you've gone through, uh, I think, a, a learning curve there in terms of how you go about that. I know you, you probably already stream your services, but now that you're relying on that as the primary way of gathering folks, what are some of the things you've had to learn or the steps you've had to take in, in that whole transition in a short so, time? So at the, my current church, Queen Anne Baptist Church, um, it's uh, we consider ourselves in the neighborhood of the Space Needle in Seattle. We're up the hill from from the Space Needle, um, and but we're a smaller church, so we actually hadn't been streaming our services. If we'd streamed anything, it'd just been the sermon at that point. Um, but now that we realize like more people were going to be at home, and we were going to be live, um, we had to think through a lot of things. So I mean, we made that decision last Saturday to put it on Facebook Live. And I've, I've done this in previous churches and other settings, but this time I realized we needed to really be clear about permissions in terms of who is on the camera. Um, there may be people in my church who don't want to be on the camera, and I don't have time on Saturday to figure that out. 
So I decided, okay, I need to practice where the camera's going to be, my phone for Facebook Live, and who's going to be on the on that. And I decided it would be me and for the children's message, my son, because I can give him permission and he doesn't care. So um, those kind of permissions. But then also music and thinking about streaming. A lot of churches don't consider this. They think, oh, yeah, there's copyright laws, but they're not going to really sue a church. Well, I've heard of churches being sued. I've heard of this happening, being fined for violating copyright. So we've had a copyright license through CCLI for our church for a long time. We um, So we could copy and share music. We had upgraded to a different version of the license so that we could download sheet music from the, for the praise songs. Neither of those cover streaming. Streaming is a separate license. And I went and checked, and I'm very glad uh, that I did. So on Saturday night, I purchased the streaming license for a year. Um, since that time, if, if you've listened and, and seen online, um, I think one license is offering a free version right now for a month. And Chalice Press has announced that the hymns that are published under Chalice Press in their hymnal can be streamed um, free from now through Easter. So there's, there's some different options. Um, the other thing that I thought of was public domain hymns. You don't have to worry about any of that. So the old favorites, like the old Rugged Cross or Amazing Grace or um, we're going to do I Have Decided to Follow Jesus this Sunday, those are all, uh, you know, public domain. So you can you can do those without any concerns. So those are the things we had to think about was permissions for who could be on camera, permissions for music. We also need to think about permissions for liturgy. Liturgy that is published in books is often copyrighted, um, especially prayer books and things. Um, most Baptists I know are pretty creative and don't necessarily have a lot of written liturgy or they write their own. Um, so we're kind of, you know, just want to check if you're using something from another source if there's permission to use it. Um, so those are the things you have to think about. And what is life like in Seattle now? Um, <laughs> what can we expect elsewhere as communities begin to experience the kind of things that you're already going through there? Um, well, it's it's interesting because there was a headline that came out, I think, on Monday about Seattle being a ghost town. And most of us were like, well, that's not true. You know, things had slowed down. But at that point, schools still were open. And, um, you know, I mean, even the universities were still having classes. Things hadn't quite taken the turn that they have now. That was Monday and now it's Friday. You know, five days. Schools are closed for six weeks. Um Amazon and Microsoft and Boeing had already started allowing people to work from home, but now most businesses have a lot of restaurants are shutting down. Some of the major chefs in the city have closed all of their restaurants. Um, others are moving to just a delivery or takeout format. Um, a lot of the local coffee shops have closed, which was, uh, there was no notice really. You would show up and it was closed. The public library has announced it's closing for this duration. The aquarium is closing. Everything is shutting down. Now it feels a little bit like a ghost town, except for Starbucks. Starbucks is still going strong in Seattle, <laughs> so you still get your coffee. But it's definitely different, and it's changed every day. I mean, if you talk to me on Monday or Tuesday, I had no idea schools would be closed for six weeks. We were talking two weeks. Now it's six weeks. 
We are talking a major shift. Um, obviously, the economy is on everybody's minds. Um, people are probably going to go without work. Luckily, there's a lot of companies that are offering to continue paying during this time period. There's incentives from the governor that have come through. Um, there, you know, child care is a huge issue. The Boys and Girls Club has stepped up and is offering free child care. They, they are able to do it under the guidelines from the governor. All first responders and medical workers are getting free child care during this time because we need them to keep working. So the big thing is there does seem to be more of a pull of community in Seattle. Like we're all in this together. There's, um, Somebody created a Google Doc that's going around and people can fill it out if they need help, if they need somebody to go get groceries for them or if they, you know, if they're on the two week isolation and people can respond to that. And I'm seeing people just reach out of the, you know, pulling out of whatever they've got and they're helping each other. And, um, and there's a, there's definitely a feel like we are more neighbors are stopping and talking to each other which in Seattle is not common. Seattle is known for the Seattle freeze where people kind of keep to themselves and it's hard to make friends. That's changing in the last few days. People are talking to each other more, checking in on each other. Um, definitely feeling like, you know, we've got to pull through this together. So it's interesting. It's interesting whether these kind of changes will last, um, whether it's just right now, whether we're in a cultural shift that's happening. I think the big thing that I would advise for people um, is just be aware that this is going to change every day. Every single day, something different has happened. Um, the good news is it seems like these precautions have started to slow the rate here in, in Washington. I haven't checked the numbers for today, but the previous days, the cases were growing by about 70 cases a day. And yesterday, it only grew by 36 cases, and there was only one death. So it seemed to, at least yesterday, we had a slowdown. Whether that was a fluke or whether that is proof of our efforts, we'll find out. You've uh, written in the article about this as a uh, uncertain time, a liminal space. What, what do you mean by that term, a liminal space? Kind of. This is this is a space where there's just so much uncertainty, and there is, you know, what we've known in the past is not necessarily what's going to be the new what what's going to be what we know tomorrow, and yet. Perhaps there's things we can learn from the past. I mean, as a pastor, one of the things I'm encouraging is for people to call each other and to send cards, which, as I said, that's old school tech, you know, um, using Google Chat or Zoom or Facebook Live is new tech, but old tech is really important to use in this time. So it's this strange feeling of the world is upside down and how do we find normalness in this? Um, and, you know, there's humor, all of the memes about the toilet paper being gone from the stores, those just crack me up. And everybody I know is still, we're finding some humor in all this, even though it's a very serious um, concern. It's, yeah, it's just bizarre. It's just not anything you could plan for without knowing now that we know and we're hoping that we can help other cities and communities prepare for this. Um, yeah, it's just this strange space to be in. To that end, what would you uh, say to pastors elsewhere who are facing the kind of 
decisions you've already faced, um, the kind of challenges you're already living through? What what recommendations, what guidance would you have? Yeah, I I would err on the side of you. We are in this together, and we need to flatten the curve. Um, you know, I think the decision we made last Sunday was for the knowledge that we had at the time was the right decision. The decision to close this Sunday is the knowledge is the right move because of the knowledge that we have. And I would urge that across the country. The sooner you do this, the better chance we have of getting ahead of this and not turning into Italy or or elsewhere in the world. Um, you know, I think that's the lesson that's being learned. That's why schools are closing across the country and college campuses are shutting down. And I know I still have people, friends on my Facebook who think we're all overreacting. I'd rather us look back in a couple months and say, oh, maybe we overreacted than to end up with so many people dead. And that's something as a pastor that we need to be aware of is that if this continues, we're gonna be doing funerals. We're going to be doing a lot of funerals. Um, the folks who have um, died here in Washington State, I believe, have all come from um, from older from uh, nursing care facilities. They've all been older folks. They've all been the kind of people that are members of our churches. Um, a local church here in Seattle, um, in our neighborhood in Queen Anne, um, one of their members is one of the victims of this uh, coronavirus, and they um, passed away last week. So this is going to hit us. Um, there's going to be people in our churches who are sick in the hospital that we cannot go visit. Nursing homes are going to be restricted for visits. People are going to be lonely. Um, especially people who don't have technology or anyone to reach out to. Um, so that's my my concern is that we do have to get ahead of this. And I think there's some people who are downplaying it, some people who think, oh, we just wash our hands and use hand sanitizer, you know, or if it, we catch it, it's just going to be like the cold or the flu, which may be the case for some of us if you if you have it. Um, I have a good friend who they, they suspect she might have it, and she's been sick for weeks and has not been able to shake this thing. She hasn't had to go to the hospital, but it's just been awful. And I mean, even if it is just like the cold of the flu, it doesn't make you feel good, and you don't want to give that to somebody who could die from it. Um, so that's, I mean, that was the consideration for us this Sunday, was thinking about the fact that one person who could be asymptomatic there are people who are not showing any symptoms who came to visit church and then one of us goes home and passes it on to somebody who's vulnerable and i don't want to take that risk and i think it's really uh challenging us to rethink uh or think in some new ways uh, what it means to be the body of Christ in a time like this. I mean, we may be right. separated, but are there ways we can gather as you are doing online, um, ways that we can continue to to be together in spirit, if not uh, physically present to one another? Yeah, that's um, one of the things in, so one of the things we had done at our church while we hadn't been live streaming, we had been doing Bible study online. We started uh, doing Bible study via Google Hangouts because I had I had parents of newborns who weren't going to be able to come out in the evening, but could join us after their child went to bed. I had folks who just, you know, long day of work, they get home, they don't really want to go out again. So we started doing Bible study um, 
at, with Google Hangouts, and we still had it in person in our church. I had a few people who came who didn't have the technology um, who would join me in the in the church, but the rest of us would join on Google Hangouts. So it was a really simple call this week to say, hey, Bible studies on Google Hangouts only. And even then, if like I had, I think I only had two people who would come who um, don't have that technology. And if they had come, it probably would have been a very low risk situation, but they chose not to, which was, which was good that they had made that decision for their own health, but we'd already made that jump. So I, we have that. And then I do community hours at a coffee shop where I invite people to come and, and chat with me from the community or from the church. I just moved that to Google Hangouts and just said, okay, everybody get your own coffee and we're gonna still continue this at four o'clock on Tuesdays. Um, and we'll have our Google chat, we'll have our community hours that way. And I've been texting with people and just encouraging people through through text messages, um, calling all of my um, folks who do not have technology and just checking in with them at least once or twice a week. And then encouraging my folks in an email to my congregation, I listed the names of all of our folks who are in assisted living who cannot have visitors and cannot leave and are stuck and said, please send these people a card. Um, let's get to the, let's do that old fashioned tech and connect with each other. So we're finding ways of being community. Another thing that we did, we had already had it on our schedule to volunteer to cook a meal for the local youth shelter. What we did is we just checked in with everybody who was volunteering, made sure they were not in the at-risk category, that they were healthy, and they went ahead and did that because the shelters, they still need help. Um, that youth shelter has since now canceled all volunteers for the next two weeks. Instead, they're asking for financial donations to help with providing that food. So we can contribute with our finances, we can contribute with volunteering if it's allowed and we are healthy and able and not putting anyone else at risk. We can um, deliver food, do um, supply drives, that sort of thing, because those needs are still continuing throughout this whole crisis. So there's ways for us to be the church. Um, it's just we have to rethink how we've done things and how we can do things now. One of the, I hate to say exciting things, but one of the things I look forward to is what can we learn in this experience of how we do things that might be better and, and change how we interact and cultivate community both online and in person. Because I do still think we need in-person community and this is gonna be a hard six weeks with no school and services. So we'll have to think about that and how, you know, we're, <laughs> we're 10 days into this, two days into no school. What will this look like six weeks from now will be interesting to, to see. Quite a, quite a challenge ahead. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm glad to, to be here, and it's nice to connect with people since I'm not seeing too many these days. And I want to encourage our listeners to read Mindy's article, Ministry in the Midst of a COVID-19 Outbreak, and other articles that she's written for us at christiancitizen.us. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. I'm glad I could be on. Here now is Curtis Ramsey Lucas with Brian Jackson. The Reverend Brian Jackson is a contributing writer with The Christian Citizen. 
and a member of the Mount Hood Cherokees, a satellite community of the Cherokee Nation. He lives in Kirkland, Washington, and is the author of Chattahoochee Rain, a Cherokee novella. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thank you, Curtis. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. So the first fatality from COVID-19, the coronavirus, in the United States occurred at your neighborhood hospital. Um, what was it like when you first heard that news and in the days immediately following? Well, I, think I would say distressing is a fair word simply because, you know, we're dealing with the unknown um, to, to which, to a large degree, I think we still are. And when it first hit the area, we, of course, were aware of, uh, you know, the situation in China. And I think just being such a small community, even though we are Seattle's east side, um, I just think it came, you know, as, as a unpleasant, unexpected surprise. And what is life like in your community now? Well, I have a sense that the uh, the panic, if you will, is starting to subside uh, to the degree that, you know, when I'm out and about, um, you know, I don't see as many uh, masks, for example, as, as, I, as I did. I mean, certainly there are people wearing them, but I think uh, there's more of a... Uh, a broad perspective uh, on what's happening. And, you know, certainly we grieve for the families here who have lost loved ones. Uh, it, it obviously is unusual to uh, have so many deaths in such a short period of time from something that is virtually uh, unknown. But uh, I think we are... Uh, as I said, beginning to gain perspective and recover somewhat from that. In many ways, I think you are living in the reality that many of us in other parts of the country are just beginning to experience. Um, what have you found helpful in the time that this is happening and unfolding there? What, what's been concerning um, that you've seen? <laughs> For me, honestly, I think the most helpful thing, I mean, of course, other than looking at this spiritually and theologically, I think pragmatically it's, and again, this is with all due respect to uh, the families who have lost loved ones. I certainly, especially as a uh, former hospital chaplain, that's not something that I take lightly. And I, but I do look at the the numbers, and when when we look at the numbers, there are approximately forty eight thousand people in in the city of Kirkland, and though the deaths have been concentrated here, that is still um, you know a relatively small number considering what we're dealing with. And then when you consider that in King County, which encompasses the greater Seattle area. I mean, you're talking 2,200,000 something people. And the uh, death rate, I think, has reached, the fatality rate has reached um, 31 as of this morning. Uh, again, um, unpleasant and unfortunate. But with respect to looking at the, uh, the overall numbers and looking at it statistically, you know, when you 
grab a calculator and try to look at this from percentages, you're looking at, you know, 0. 0.000 type thing. And I think that should be encouraging to people overall, just simply because um, when you look at uh, different contagions we've had throughout history, this is nothing like that, at least at this point. Of course, we're still wrestling with the unknown. And I would imagine the CDC is doing everything in their power to, uh, you know, really get the best picture they can. But comparatively, um, these these numbers are, are extremely low. And when you consider that uh, far more people die of the flu each year, which I, it's been uh, preached to us since this thing began, uh, but I think with with good reason. Um, it's it's just an, an important tool, I think, to help us maintain that perspective that we need to. In the uh, article that you wrote, we published in in early March, not not that long ago. Um, you had written that the uh, novel coronavirus is going to rock many a boat in the coming months. Um, and here we are just a few weeks later, and, and obviously it's rocking a lot of boats with um, um, closures, uh, school closures and um, large gathering um, and uh, things shutting down really across the country. Um, as you do think about this theologically and, and spiritually, um, how do you see Christians responding? What what should we be doing? Uh, what questions should we be asking? Well, you know, that is such an excellent question. Um, whereas I certainly do not pretend to have the... <laughs> Uh, you know the answers for that it it seems to me when i when i wrote about charity and courage i think it's these are uh important you know when we look at the really the i guess the comprehensive coherence of scripture we see this throughout the old and new testaments and examples of um charity and, and courageous acts and it, it just as as i wrote in the article it, it makes more sense to me to um, maintain calm and composure, uh, checking in on neighbor, and being with family and friends as much as is reasonable given the social distancing that we are asked to you know, maintain. But I think that this idea of... Um, uh, keeping us apart for long periods of time might prove to be problematic as we move forward, just in that, you know, we are, we're humans, we're, we're meant to, to interact and be with one another. And um, again, you know, referring back to the pragmatic, I, I think about, uh, you know, the possibility of this extending into the summer. And I think, you know, some of us are hoping that with the warmer climate and that sort of thing, that that will actually have an effect on the, the spread of the virus itself. And let's let's pray that it does. But as we continue to maintain our distance from one another, I wonder about these uh, things that we are just normal, that our immune systems will normally shrug off. The, the, you know, the common cold, which of course is a coronavirus, but it's something that obviously we deal with year after year. And I think the 
the more we're kept apart, the longer we're kept apart, uh, I think the less likely we will uh, be able to successfully manage those kinds of things. So I think that if, uh, you know, we think about the teachings of Jesus and, uh, you know, the goodness that we are, you know, really supposed to be showing toward one another, I think as the weeks, in the coming weeks and months, we'll see changes that will make more sense to us. And, um, you know, just basically uh, be able to manage ourselves better during, you know, spring, that spring turns into summer. So I don't, I don't know that that really answers your question, but those are kind of the thoughts that are going through my head. Sure. You're a member of the Mount Hood Cherokees. Um, tell me a little bit about that community and how it is responding uh, to this pandemic. Well, I have to tell you, I, and you know, it's, that's, that's an area where I'm really disappointed right now because I just got an email. We, we meet uh, the second Saturday of every month. And actually, for me, um, it's, it's quite the drive because we actually meet down in Portland. So that's about a three-hour drive for me. So my community is not immediately at hand, but I do interact with them frequently, and I make as many meetings during the year as I can. And you know, this one, um, like so many other things, has been canceled because of the social distancing that we're asked to keep. And, and, and you know, I, I do believe that this has been a wise move. I think that this initial uh, social distance has is keeping this thing from spreading as much as it could. So I'm pleased with that. But we, um, again, as you say, we're a satellite community of the Cherokee Nation. I, <clears throat> excuse me. I myself am not a tribal citizen, but I am a registered descendant in the first families of the Cherokee Nation. And I have ancestors on uh, most every major Cherokee role, you know, going back um, to 1817 and um, very meaningful for me. It is very much... um, I could say, uh, you know, a church group for me from the spiritual standpoint that um, this part of my family has held great meaning for me and they have certainly been, um, you know, very good to me. So we enjoy getting together. We often have um, speakers from the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma come out and give presentations or we'll have the various members of uh, our own group give presentations and, um, you know, we just basically immerse ourselves in the culture while we're there. So it's, um, it's a, a very pleasant uh, relationship. Yeah. Are there specific uh, resources or practices of that heritage that you have found helpful to draw on that uh, might be helpful to others? You know, I think, <clears throat> Again, another excellent question, because among Cherokees, you will find a diversity of, um, you know, methods and techniques, if you will, of um, whether it be spiritual cleansing or what have you. Many people um, do smudging uh, ceremonies, um, you know, with the tobacco and or whatever it is that they might use to perform smudging with and often people um, do smudging ceremonies in their homes and um, which I think is certainly a good idea, whatever one's tradition, um, anything similar to that, if that's something that holds meaning for you, because we are talking about a contagion. So 
Um, as much as washing your hands and sanitizing your hands, I think that's something that's, um, you know, certainly equally as powerful for, for many of us. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to join us today. Well, I thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. And I want to encourage our listeners to read uh, Brian's article, Charity Amidst the Chaos, When Coronavirus Comes to Your Neighborhood at christiancitizen.us. You'll also find there a featured series of articles on ministry responses to this pandemic, as well as guidelines uh, for ministry in this time. Thank you uh, once again, Brian. Thank you, Curtis. Thank you to this week's guests, Mindy Welton Mitchell and Brian Jackson. Our theme music is Believable Too by Peter Sandberg. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show, website, and newsletter are produced by myself, Joshua Kegi. Stories are copy edited by Hannah Estefanos. Our art director is Danny Ellison. The Christian Citizen editorial board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagray, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Sarah Strosel-Kegi, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett, and the Reverend Cassandra Karkoff Williams. And our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, the Reverend Kimberly Payton Jones, the Reverend Stephen D. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McNichol, and the Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about the Christian Citizen and to find ministry resources around the coronavirus from the CDC and the American Baptist Home Mission Societies, visit our website, christiancitizen.us. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. We plan to be back with a new episode next week. Thanks for listening.